Good morning. Well, December is here and hope is here. That's the name of our new four-week Christmas message series that I'm beginning today. And we want to invite you to come all four weeks. It'll culminate on December 24th, Christmas Eve, because hope is a big topic, especially biblical hope. And we're going to paint a little bit of the picture each week, but you want to see the whole picture and in experience. Like, hope is here. Okay, so I say welcome Christmas season and welcome Vineyard family. In our family, whenever there's any kind of problem, like, you know, a a leaky faucet, a, a Christmas tree that's leaning over, a bicycle that needs to be assembled, you know, a clogged toilet, we call for help. I mean, we call for HAP. That's my husband. <laughs> I mean, he's a genius <laughs> at fixing things. We, any crisis we know is going to be averted, we call him the crisis king because in most situations, he can fix the problem. Well, in our Christmas message series, Hope is Here, I have a better solution than Hap is Here, as good as that is. <laughs> now, by Hope is Here, at Christmas, we're focusing on His name is Jesus. You see, hope is a person. It's actually God himself. And Jesus changes everything, no matter what the problem is, right? Or maybe not. I mean, for those of you who don't know Jesus, you'd be like, well, how is it that Jesus is here changes everything? And for those of you who do know Jesus, you might be saying, Really? Because my problem is a whole lot more complicated than a leaky faucet or a clogged toilet. Is Jesus here? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you. Hope is here. And that Holy Spirit, you will open our hearts and our minds. Today, you'll touch us where we most need it. You'll reveal more and more of our incredible King of hope, Jesus Christ himself. Just come. We welcome you here. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. A couple of months ago, uh, Happy and I were babysitting for some of our grandchildren, and we decided to watch the movie The Impossible. I don't know if you've seen it. It's actually a very well-done movie. It's a true story of the horrific tsunami that hit Thailand and surrounding regions on December 26, 2004. And it was very, very destructive. Well, it really wasn't appropriate for my four-year-old granddaughter. I'm sorry, but grandparents do those things sometimes. But I, I set her up with her tablet, okay? So she, I was like, she's not interested in this, right? Okay, so in the middle of a very intense scene, like, you know, the ocean is coming in, people are being swept away, lives are being destroyed, buildings are being destroyed. Molly, who's obviously not playing on her tablet, is looking straight at the TV and she says, Manna, why didn't Jesus stop the storm? (sighs) 
mean, here's my four-year-old granddaughter asking one of the most perplexing, pondered, pontificated, (laughs) theological questions throughout history. Why didn't Jesus stop the storm? Because if God is, as we believe, all-loving, all-powerful, all-good, why do bad things happen? And why doesn't he just stop the storm, stop the cancer, right? Stop the pain, stop the violence, stop the suffering, stop the injustice. Why doesn't Jesus stop the storm? What would you tell a four-year-old? More importantly, what do you tell yourself? Because it's a really important question, okay? You see, if God can't be trusted to keep bad things from happening, or at least stop them when they do, how can he be trusted at all to be a loving and faithful father? Well, this theological struggle has a long history, and it has a name. Theodicy. Come on, say it with me. Theodicy. Oh, you're good, but not that good, okay? (laughs) No, theodicy names that abstract problem of pain. The whole, like, logical dilemma of how can God be good and all-powerful, even as horrible things just regularly happen all around us? But theodicy also names what I would call a crisis of faith for, for believers. And it often comes when we encounter suffering or we encounter pain. And it's not, theodicy isn't just some cold philosophical conundrum. No, this is a quote that I think captures it. No, theodicy, it is the engine of our grimmest doubts. It can sometimes wither belief altogether. Now, a recent survey showed that for most, uh, the most commonly stated reason among Uh, Gen Z, millennials, you know, of whom we have, you know, quite a few in our church community. But one of their reasons for unbelief is they have a hard time believing a good God would allow so much suffering in our world. Well, Merry Christmas to you, too. It's okay. Merry Christmas to you, too. No, this actually is a message of Christmas. Believe it or not, it is full of hope. You see, my reply to Molly, as unsatisfactory as it might sound to you, but what I have found to be true in my own life, but more importantly, the lives of thousands, probably millions all throughout history, is this. Jesus who is infinitely loving and all-powerful, does not always stop the storm. But Jesus, who is infinitely all-loving and all-powerful, is always with us in the storm. Now, as much as I know this to be true, and I've experienced it to be true over and over I want you to know, because we believe in being honest here and hopeful, but I want you to know, as true as it is, he's always with me in the storm. It doesn't always feel like it, okay? (laughs) And that's where you choose to trust, right? You choose to trust the one you can't see, but that you know loves you, never leaves you, actually lives inside of you which is the incredible truth uh, under the new covenant. 
Now, Christmas initially, you know, initiated this powerful truth that hope is here, right? Emmanuel, God is with us. <laughs> now, not fully and completely in that we live in that tension, right, of the two kingdoms, the already what has come and the not yet, which is to come be fully consummated. And one day, all the storms will cease, right? There will be peace forever for everyone. 100% hope fulfilled. We won't just make peace in our pain. We will have the Prince of Peace who's going to eradicate all pain. And that's good news. (laughs) Okay. But hope is here now. It's here now. He came at Christmas. He's still here. And it's important to know and experience. See, we're big here on experience. I don't want to just have something up here. I want to know it. And by know, I mean I want to experience it. Know, the, the definition of know is being to be engaged with it. No, I want to know it. You see, if we don't know and experience this, we will be sick at heart. Now, this is a very popular proverb. Some of you probably have heard it or spoken it yourself. Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Are you familiar with that? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Most of us know this. You know, we've hoped for the marriage to be reconciled. We've hoped for the child to come home. We hope for the cancer to be healed. We hoped for the new job. We've hoped, we've hoped, we've hoped for the grief to abate, right? Our hearts are sick. We're sick by the delay and we're sick by the absence of answers. But then we need to read the rest of that proverb. And what does that say? It says, But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Okay, now you might read that and on the surface say, oh, that means when answers come, when things change, I'll be happy. Yeah, and that's obviously one meaning. But as you know, with scripture, there's always another level and another level, right? And how many of you know that one of the names of Jesus is none other than tree of life? You see, he is the tree of life. He is the, the manifestation of God's life and power here. He is here. Hope is here. And it's a desire fulfilled because Jesus is here. Now, that's the good news of the Christmas story, but it's also the good news of each of our stories that Jesus is here in the storm, no matter what, our problem, our situation. But I'm here to tell you again, as someone with white hair, that learning to live that truth will take you a lifetime because there's new storms every day. (laughs) And yes, I've learned over and over to trust his faithfulness and his goodness. And today's message is specifically called biblical hope because as we're going to discover, biblical hope is a little bit different from just ordinary hope. Now, when we think of ordinary hope, like it's, it's a positive outlook. You know, we're in bad circumstances and oh, it's gonna change. You know, good times are coming and that's good. It's, it's actually, we all need that. But it's more, it's optimism. It's positivity. I see the glass is half full, right? And that's, that's important. I hope I get a better job. I, I hope I get a good report. I hope I get the iPad for Christmas or whatever. <laughs> 
But biblical hope has a different connotation. And this is very important. Now, there's actually many words for hope in the biblical languages. And depending on what translations you use, you know, it it can be confusing. So I'm going to just zero in on two. Two of the Hebrew words for hope. And the first one is yakal, hope. It's often translated hope. But it means to wait for. Ah. And the other Hebrew word is kwava. Wait for it. To wait (laughs) with tense expectation, kind of like a hunter, you know, waiting for his prey. That's actually not very encouraging. Come on, is it? Wait, wait for. No, to me, wait is a four-letter word. Yeah, and if you're of the impatient type like I am, you know, I have struggle waiting. I have struggle waiting in line. Why are there always 10 cars in line at the Starbucks drive through I don't know. Like, but I'm impatient. I don't like waiting. I don't like waiting on hold with the Amazon representative as he tries to straighten out my order again. I don't like waiting for my mammogram results to show up in my car. I don't like waiting. I guess most of you do, because, you know, you're all like, oh, what's the big deal? Well, to me, it's a big deal. (laughs) Waiting is hard. Okay, but in the biblical Hebrew, if hope is about waiting, and it's about waiting, you know, with expectation of some sort, waiting for what? Well, that's where I'm very thankful for the prophet Isaiah, who we're going to look at today. He's actually known as the prophet of hope. He's one of the major prophets. I think he wrote at least 66 chapters (laughs) contained in the Old Testament. And he is a prophet of hope. And he, like all good prophets (laughs) under the Old Covenant, he called out God's people who just routinely got mired in sin and selfishness and darkness. And he was just like, no, come back because the Syrians are coming for you or the Babylonians are going to take you into captivity. Like, come back to him, repent. And always because he wanted to speak a word of hope. That, you know, God initiated a plan, a plan for his people, which includes all of us. And that plan is one day there is coming a very special person who is going to totally restore hope. And so he was known as a prophet of hope. But in, in one of his earlier uh, texts, he, 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 it was dark. It was like a time of deep despair. And he said, okay, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel. So I will quava, I will hope, or I will wait for him. Now, this is the distinction. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. And you find that same notion all throughout the Old Covenant, particularly in the Psalms. That word is used over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for, it's not for the circumstances to change so much. Their hope is God himself. You see, biblical hope is not based on, uh, it, it, biblical hope is based on a person which makes it very different from optimism or positivity No, optimism means like, I choose in any situations, I'm a very positive person. I'm a very optimistic person. But how circumstances, okay, they're going to work out. I'm going to be positive. 
Biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. Biblical hope in the Bible and all the people who engaged in biblical hope, no, there's no evidence things are actually going to get better, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to choose hope. I'm going to choose God himself. Okay, that's huge. All right. Now, biblical hope is not positivity, but a person whose character and promises can be trusted. And we have a whole record of that, okay? Whose character and promises can be trusted. Now, Isaiah's prophetic message that we're going to look today just embodies this whole concept of biblical hope that, you know, he warns of judgment, he calls them to obedience, and he said, you're gonna face the consequences of your rebellion. Did you know sin has consequences? Oh yeah, Jesus might have forgiven them all, and he has, but sin has consequences. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that in there. Okay, he said, you're going to face the consequences, but there's hope. And his words were full of hope. Again, he's describing this powerful king. Now we're going to read this text in Isaiah 9, and you're going to recognize some of the names of this king, because you might have it on that plaque from Walmart, or you might sing it in some of your songs, you know, or, you know, uh, it's a very common, you're, you're going to recognize the names. Okay, Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah already gave the bad news. Now, this is the good news. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore in the zeal. <laughs> That's the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, we got Yahweh doing this. This is good news. This is quite a king. This is hopeful. He's wonderful counselor. That, that does not mean good therapist. Wonderful counselor. As good as he is with that. He's a great strategist. Okay, he's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's a prince of peace. He's everlasting father. I mean, when he arrives, he's going to be the embodiment of the power and presence of God of Israel. He's gonna bring about all the promises <laughs> that he has spoken you know, to David. You know, that there's gonna be this faithful king. He's gonna bring the kingdom of God. And of course, the Israelites were thinking, okay, now this king, nope, he fell into sin. Okay, it's gonna be this king. Nah, he fell into selfishness. Now it's gonna be this king. No, no. No, and one by one, all disqualified by sin and selfishness. The future promise keeps getting delayed, kicked out way into the future. And that is how this promise of a coming Prince of Peace, a Messiah, became a distant hope for the future. And you need to know this prophecy was written 700 years <laughs> before Jesus was born in that stable in Bethlehem. Now that tells us something really, really important. And it may not be all that good of news to you, but it's true. 
God's timeline is often very different from our own. And that's not a bad difference, okay? I'm just saying the sooner you settle that, the happier you'll be, okay? <laughs> okay. Now, Jesus is born, you know, into this story 700 years after uh, Isaiah prophesies. And oh my goodness, hope is here. <laughs> the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace. Hope is no longer deferred. Our desire is fulfilled. The tree of life himself has come. Okay. But wait. What about the increase of his government and of peace? There will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Well, most of you are familiar with Jesus' ministry. The oppressive, savage Romans there, there was not a sign of a government of peace. There was no sign of justice and righteousness. And while Jesus, yes, oh yeah, he was a king with a robe, but he's not sitting on a throne. He's hanging on a cross. And he's not wearing a crown of gold. He is wearing a crown of thorns. Hmm. Hope is here. See, this is an important piece of the whole theodicy puzzle. You know, this whole problem of evil and not understanding how it's all working out. You see, there's another player on the field. We totally believe that. We totally believe he's real, Satan. And it was his rule that Jesus came to overthrow. It was the kingdom of Satan that Jesus came to destroy, okay? And by his death and by his resurrection, he defeated that enemy. But meanwhile, as we're waiting for the fullness of the kingdom to come, we live in a very complex cosmos, okay? And that enemy still goes about as a roaring lion, speaking lies and deception to derail people from true hope, from true trust in the king who did come, okay? Now, there will be a final fulfillment. We absolutely believe that in the end. You know, that enemy will be thrown into the lake of fire. But it wasn't the Romans who were overthrown. It was a totally different enemy. And the kingdom is not fully here, but it will be one day. My point, hmm, this is very important. God has a track record of not acting in the way we expect or hope. <laughs> Read the Bible. <laughs> Nobody in Jesus' day expected that prophecy to be fulfilled that way. Nobody. They were dumbfounded. They couldn't figure out why he wasn't defeated the Ro defeating the Romans. They couldn't figure out why he got hung on a cross. <laughs> no, God has a track record. But you know what? We can trust him. He is faithful to do what he says. He is faithful. We can hope in him because hope is here. And biblical hope, it's not based on optimism. <laughs> you know? Although we know things are going to get better 100%, but our hope is in a person. And we can trust him completely to bring about a future, whether that's in your own life right now or your family or, you know, in the end, we can trust him to bring about a future that as surprising as a crucified man 
rising from the dead and a devil being defeated because we have a supernatural God. And the sooner you believe that, you're going to, again, be able to actually experience the reality of hope being here, okay? It's so, so powerful. And it's, biblical hope is bold. It's, it's really bold. We're waiting for the whole universe to be finally and fully rescued from the evil one and his lies by King Jesus. So we hope in him. We wait for him. We wait for his timing. And we wait for the way he wants to do things, okay? We trust his love. We trust actually his freedom and creativity to do things the way he wants. Trust me, he's a lot smarter than any of us. Okay, okay, what does this just mean practically for us? Like, how do we live in this? Well, two important ways that biblical hope has worked in my own life, and they both have to do with prayer. And I'll, I'll share those in a moment, but mostly with uh, prayer in times of pain and prayer when hope has been deferred, okay? So if any of you are tracking, even in your own life now, just, yeah, just listen up here. Okay, in 2011, I had I hit just like a dead end in my faith. I was questioning things. I was questioning God's love. I was burdened. I was burned out. There were so many unanswered prayers. I just, like, hope was totally deferred. And I, I felt hopeless. My heart was sick. And I think some of you have been there. Maybe not you 20-somethings, but definitely anybody over 40 has been there. <laughs> okay. So I enrolled in a two-year course up near Chicago called the Transforming Center, run by Ruth Haley Barton, an author I, I really respect. And I attended over two years a series of retreats at a Catholic convent center. It wasn't run by the Catholics, but it was a wonderful retreat center. And during that time, what was so good for me is I didn't know anyone. And this was an advantage for me because nobody knew me as Dilem and a pastor. Nobody knew me as, as any of that. I was just ordinary hurting die. And we had very good spiritual direction, you know, very, very good counsel. And my mentor uh, was very, very helpful to me. And one problem I shared with her is just, I had just deteriorated into this whole mode of how can I get God to answer my prayers? I mean, there were so many situations in our family, our church, I mean, the world for that matter, that needed answered. And I was so frustrated because God didn't seem to be answering, at least not on my timeline and in the way. You know, so often, I just, you know, I had learned this lesson over and over again. When I'm in those times, number one, I have to stop asking Jesus, why? Nope, that doesn't work. I also have to stop trying to tell him how to fix it, which is another problem I have. So maybe you don't, but I'm just saying, I was, you know, sharing my heart. And my mentor said this to me, and I actually went back and I looked on the, one of the papers I'd submitted, and she wrote this to me. It's especially difficult to wait for God when he is your only hope. Hmm. My only hope. Well, fast forward. I, I did more study. I, this is what I like to do. I wanted to look up the, the Hebrew word for hope. And I stumbled on this quava, which is 
a synonym for weight. But what I discovered is you have to know the picture. It's like a braid that is braided together. Not just an ordinary robe, but it's braided. And the revelation came to me, oh, I don't wait. I don't hope for God. I wait with God. And that's a huge difference to wait with him as opposed to just waiting for him. And of course, I know Jesus lives in me by his spirit. I know he never leaves me. But the fact that, oh yeah, he's waiting with me it made a big, big difference. And I learned some very valuable lessons. And one of the chief lessons had to do with this whole issue of he is my only hope. Now, I don't know what your other hopes are. Like you might hope in hap. Because, you know, he's very handy and helpful. Or you might hope in your spouse. or I don't know. That wasn't actually my problem. As much as I love my husband. I wasn't hoping in him. You know what the Holy Spirit uncovered in me? My hope was in me. What? Yeah, my hope was in, well, okay, I'm waiting for God. Okay, I'm going to contend. I'm going to contend against the enemy. I'm going to contend for the truth. I'm going to contend. I'm going to show God what a warrior I am. And Jesus said, all that contending is just control. You're just trying to get me to do what you want. <laughs> now maybe, again, that was really powerful for me because you have to understand, if I don't contend, I feel irresponsible. I feel lazy. You don't? I do. Like, I gotta, I gotta, or no. She said, just no. You wait with me, die. You trust me. You trust my control, not yours. <laughs> okay, Jesus. And, you know, can I just say, this isn't a what will be will be. Please don't go there. You want to know why? We don't serve a capricious Greek God who just does what he wants. We serve the almighty Yahweh who is faithful, who is loving, who is good, who is 100% true to his word. Okay, so I can put my trust. Okay, hope is here. So now the two ways of prayer. The first I'm going to share with you is one of my favorites, which is prayer in the spirit. And for me, that means speaking in a language I don't know. And then secondly, I'm going to share very briefly just a fresh love that I gained when I went to the Transforming Center, a love for prayers of the church. I fell in love with some of the liturgy. If you were raised Catholic or Lutheran or in a more Episcopalian church, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. I always thought, oh, that's just ritual. Oh, they're just rote. Oh, that's so rich. So let me share how the Lord used both of these things. Okay, prayer in the spirit. I'm unashamedly 100% an advocate that everybody can receive the gift of tongues, which has many uses. So I don't want you to check out on me. But one of the most prominent uses that Paul addresses in Romans 8 is when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays for you. <laughs> and so I, okay. But what was the most astounding thing that Jesus began to teach me afresh as I dealt with, you know, just the discrepancy. Jesus, you said your work is finished. You know, healing is here. Deliverance is here. Prosperity is here. I believe it, Lord. The kingdom is here. It just doesn't look like it very often. So Jesus, maybe you need to come back and do something. It's like, no, actually, Di, I'm doing something very important right now. 
And of course, he talks about it in Romans 8 and in Hebrews 7. What is Jesus doing right now? (laughs) He's not playing solitude. (laughs) No, he sat down, his work is finished, but now it tells us he's ever interceding for each one of us. Jesus is praying prayers for us nonstop. He knows the number of hair on your head or none at all, whatever it might be. He knows you personally. And this is the cool thing. When I'm praying in the spirit, in tongues for me, may not be that for you, just listen. I know I'm joining the intercession that Jesus is praying on behalf of me, my family, my church, my community, my world. I get to join the prayers of Jesus. That's why now Siri tells me every morning at about 538, do you want me to set a timer for five minutes? I go, yes, please, Siri, set a timer for five minutes because you see, that's not very much, is it? But for five minutes, I just quietly see Jesus up there praying for all the things that are so heavy on my heart. And I join him as I pray in the spirit. And I leave it there as I wait with him to answer the way he wants. Okay. Okay. And then secondly, I don't have time to develop this. I just want to totally bless just the practices of all the church that have gone before us. Okay. And uh, when I was at the Transforming Center, just this rich heritage of liturgical prayers. And a couple years after I was there, I bought a book that I really have enjoyed called Prayer in the Night by Tish Harrison Warren. She's an Anglican priest, uh, and she's endured just her own personal sufferings and and pain. And she wrote uh, this, this book in response to a very difficult season of pain. And I quote her here. When we're drowning in grief, it cannot be mere optimism that maybe our circumstances will improve because we know that it may not be true. You know, if your child died, he's not coming back. I mean, you might, you know, you will see him in heaven, but see, that's not going to change, okay? We need practices and prayers that don't simply palliate our fears or pain, but that teach us to walk with God in the crucible of our own fragility. Yeah. I need the prayers and practices of millions of other saints, no matter what the denomination, that have gone before me that say, you know what? Hope is here. I can trust him. He is faithful. You can trust him. And I want to pray the prayers they've prayed as I wait with God. And I discovered, you know, the Holy Spirit, he's often called the comforter. But folks, that doesn't mean he does this. Oh, die, it's okay. No, no, no. That word, paraclete, and, and the other words that are used for his ministry of comfort, it has to do with he reaches down to you in the middle of your pain, the middle of your suffering. He's with you in the storm, and he strengthens your muscle. He strengthens your ability to stand strong in the storm, okay? He's, pain might not leave right away, although he bore our pain. Yeah. yeah, oh, there's so much more I could say. So one ancient prayer in particular that Tish talked about in her book, and 
I have just found it helpful, particularly at night when I, you know, when the darkness wants to come in on you, you know, and everything wants to press in. Uh, this is the prayer. And it'll be up here. You can actually pray it with me if you want. This, this is an ancient prayer in the common book of prayer. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. And give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, sick Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Amen. Now that might seem kind of awkward, and that doesn't sound very vineyard. It sounds pretty biblical. I wait with the Lord, because hope is here. And he is ready to reveal his timeline. He is ready to reveal his way, and we can trust the faithful one. So Father, Teach us more what biblical hope is and that we can embrace what that means for each of our lives and our situations in Jesus' name.